Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. How many of you remember what we talked about last week? <laughs> Sometimes I forget what I taught about, so I don't feel bad if, uh, if it didn't come to you in the first 10 seconds. But last week we talked about surprise. That's not actually in the Bible. And uh, I got about 20 into the 40 points that I had already prepared. And believe me, that is not an exhaustive list. So if you say, well, he didn't mention this, that doesn't mean um, <laughs> that I couldn't have. It's just that's as far as I got. So today we're actually going to do a part two. And we're going to continue on surprise that's not actually in the Bible. I believe that we closed on what I had on my list as number 19, which was I have to dress up to go to church. And we talked about how that's a cultural thing. It's not something Scripture demands, but those people who dress up for church do so for a reason. They are choosing to honor God with the way that they present themselves. And that is good. Does that mean we have to do that? We talked about how culturally there has been a shift because so many people for so long dressed up on Sunday, put one face to the world on Sunday morning and then behaved totally different that many people began to equate the Sunday morning best with hypocrisy. And some people began to say, you know what? If I can't be who I am all week long at church, then I don't want to be there at all. And people began to shift away from presenting themselves so differently and began to celebrate authenticity. Now, is that wrong? No. Both people have a good reason for why they are, are coming, and you are welcome here, period. As I said before last week, I try to dress somewhere in the middle, and then we're good. Okay, uh, next point. There's someone for everyone. God wouldn't want anyone to be unmarried. Now, maybe you were taught this, maybe it was just implied, but the idea that everyone has to be married in order to be fully fulfilling God's plan for their lives. So many people have felt that. And this, the Bible does say in Proverbs 18.22, it says, he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Marriage is God's idea. God instituted it. And there is profound value there. However, that does not mean every person needs to be married the moment they're of age. Or ever. This is what Paul said. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6. He says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. In other words, what I'm about to say isn't everyone's got to do one or the other. But he says, I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with, compassion, with passion. And then in another scripture, he talks about the person, if you continue, the person who is unmarried has only to concern themselves with pleasing the Lord. The person who is married has a responsibility to please their spouse as well. They have a much fuller plate. 
a more complicated list of to-dos. How many of you are married? You know you have a, I'm not asking you to raise your hand on that. Your to-do list is more complex. The, the concept that we need to get married in order to please God or also in order to be happy. Here's the truth. Our happiness doesn't come from something we achieve. The television shows us commercials all the time. Ford came out with a brand new Bronco. If you don't have that, you're not going to be happy. Apple came out with a brand new iPhone. If you've only got the 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you're not going to be happy until you get the 11, 12, 13, 14. If we have this concept that is constantly driven into us that happiness will come when I get a certain car, when I get a certain house, when I reach a certain number of money, when I get a, certain, get a spouse, when I will achieve happiness by obtaining something. Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, he says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know that what it is to be in need, I know what it is to have plenty, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. How many of you recognize the verse, I can do all things through him who gives me strength? Did you realize that that came right, before, right after that? Oftentimes we forget the context. He says, I can do all things. I can be in every circumstance content. Why? Because my strength comes from him. It's not my situation. So often, especially as Americans, we live... We live in a very, very, very blessed society. The, the, the concept of the poverty line in the U.S. is still luxury compared to many places in the world. And so often when an American for the first time travels out and gets to experience what third world countries and poverty looks like, they're in shock. You know why? Because culturally we've been taught to think that happiness is connected to stuff. And then when you go somewhere and you see people living in cornstalk houses with dirt floors and their kids are running around with a grin, giddy and happy and, and you know, barefoot running through the dirt, people look at that like, wait a minute, how can they be happy without stuff? I thought that my house was what made me happy. I thought that my salary was what made me happy. I thought that having certain things is what does it. Not true. Even secular studies have shown that beyond a certain point when your needs are met, more money doesn't equal more happiness. What brings happiness is having purpose and knowing that you're fulfilling that purpose. When you, when you have a goal outside of yourself and going back to apply this to, to what we started talking about, which was 
singleness versus married. If you think that another person is what makes you happy, then when you get married and discover that you're not perpetually happy, what are you going to do? I guess I got the wrong person. Why is divorce so high? Why? Because people think it's this person. When I find the one, the one. We talked a little bit about this last week, but the scripture doesn't say there is one. You realize that we can, we can get talked about. God does talk about free will. People do make choices. And if there was only one for everybody, then as soon as one person messed up, they would create a domino effect down the line where everybody else couldn't be with the one because their one is with someone else because that person married the wrong one. And then... <gasps> that's, that's, not, that's not a scriptural concept that there is one person out there who will make me happy. Except if we're talking about Jesus. All right. Next. Money is the root of all evil. How many of you caught it? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people say eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Again, going back, that ties into what we just talked about. It is the concept that money is what will make me happy. If we think I need money to be happy, I need money to be fulfilled, the Bible says that that concept, the love of getting something, that you don't have yet, that is the root of all evil. Next, everything that happens is what God wanted to happen. Let me say that again. Many people believe everything that happens is what God wanted to happen. And few things have caused more people to become frustrated bitter with God because they see something happen that is just yuck. Whatever it is, a young child dies of cancer, somebody's in a car accident, There, someone they care about, love, dies. They look at that and say, if everything that happens is exactly what God wants to happen, then God wanted that to happen and I don't want anything to do with God. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, instead he, speaking of God, is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What does this say? This says it is God's desire. What God wants is that everyone repents. How many of you know enough about Scripture to realize everyone doesn't repent? The Bible talks about people whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life. There are those who did not accept his forgiveness. But was that what God wanted? No, it says he wanted that everyone would repent. 
This, this throws a wrench in some people's idea. But we're reading Scripture. Romans 8.28 And we know that in all things, God works for good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, that verse did not say God did all things. It says that in all things, God works for good. What does that mean? That means when something happens, when, when decisions are made, when, when people, stuff happens, somebody decides to text while driving, God did not force them to text while driving. They made that choice. Now, we have an interesting balance. We know that there are occasions when God intervenes. But there is a big difference between that and, and, and saying everything that happens is what God wanted to happen. The Bible says in the next verse, Romans 8.29, it says that which he foreknew, he predestined. And we've had this discussion before. If I send out an RSVP to a party, I invite all of you to our house for dinner, and I say, please, RSVP, and half of you send back an RSVP saying you're there. So I cook food for half of you. I foreknew how many people were coming, so I predestined how much food to have. I didn't invite everyone, then cook for half, and magically cause only half of you to show up. Do you see the difference? That's what the Bible says. He foreknew, so he predestined. If it said it the other way around, the Calvinists could jump for joy. It's he foreknew, therefore he predestined. This goes along with our next point, which is God will send sickness into your life to get your attention. Now, Romans 8.28 showed us that when something bad happens, God will work good for it. He'll take the situation and he'll say, all right, I'm going to maximize any good possible from this situation. So have, have people had, have they benefited in ways because God took something negative that happened in their life and made a positive impact out of it? Absolutely. But that is so different than, you know, I think I want to teach them a lesson. I'm going to do this. Wah! And that's the picture that people have. The Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. It says, every good and perfect thing comes from the Father. And if that's the only thing it said, we could say, well, all the good stuff comes from him, but so does all the bad. But it says, who does not change and go back and forth like shifting shadows. In the morning, the sun comes up and the shadow is pointing over here. As the day goes on, the sun goes down and the shadow is pointing over there. Then in the morning, it's over here. And then in the evening, it's over there. And in the morning, it's over here. And then in the evening, it's over there. And the Bible says, that's not God. 
oh, we'll bless them on Monday, we're going to zap them with something on Tuesday, then we're going to bless them again on Wednesday, and then... No, the Bible is clear that is not it. Now, there are a lot of different causes for things that happen. And I, I, I don't have time to get into them, but we know that they come from the enemy. The Bible says that he goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Ephesians 4, 7 tells us, or 4.27 says, neither give place to the devil. He is seeking a platform, an opportunity to cause damage. That is who sends wicked things. Some things happen because, because we are under spiritual attack. Some things happen because we made a dumb choice. Some things happen because somebody else made a dumb choice. Some things happen because God put spiritual or physical laws into action. Someone says, well, God gave that person cancer. The fact that they smoked two packs a day for 25 years might have something to do with it. There are laws, physical, so much smoke in the lungs is going to have an impact. There are so many different causes. We're not going to go into an exhaustive list there. But verse 24, or number 24, excuse me, worship is just singing songs to God in a room on Sunday morning. When I say I'm going to worship God, when you hear the word worship, what do you think? Now, a few minutes ago, we were together worshiping. How many of you agree? But is that the only definition of worship? Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's read that again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, holy means set apart, for a purpose, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How many of you grew up in a house with guest towels? Nobody? Wow. Does anybody know what guest towels are? They are the sacred towels that are decorative that mom, usually mom, puts in the bathroom and then says, you can't use those because they are set apart for a particular purpose. That is the picture of what it means to be holy, set apart, to have a purpose. God says that when we treat our lives as something set apart for his purposes. When we look at situations and say, somebody invites us to go do something on Friday night, and we say to ourselves, you know what? That does not blend with God's purpose for my life. I will set apart. He sees that as an act of worship. When I set myself apart, when I choose what I do, what I say, when we consider 
making a certain comment, telling a certain joke. And we recognize, wait a minute, that's not with consistent with who and what God has called me to be. I will choose to keep my mouth shut. God says, thank you for that worship. When we set our lives apart, when we choose to live according to his purpose for our lives. He sees that as an act of worship. I lost my spot here. 25. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Beloved friends, this is Passion Translation, what should be our proper response to God's marvelous mercies? To surrender yourselves to God, to be his sacred living sacrifices and live in holiness, experiencing all the delights his heart, uh -uh, all that delights his heart for his, for this, excuse me, becomes your genuine expression of worship. All right, number 25. The only way to truly be obedient and surrender to or be in God's will is to be in full-time ministry. The Bible does not say that anywhere. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, say that with me, whatever I do, do it all for the glory of God. Are there people called to, to serve in ministry? Yes. Yes, there are. But that's not everybody. If you had to listen to everybody talk for 30 minutes every week, thank you for putting up with me. We are each called to something different. You, you may be a plumber, an electrician, a teacher, a nurse, a secretary, a CEO, a banker, an it doesn't matter. God says, whatever you do, do it unto the glory of God. You do not have to be working at a church to be in God's will. Not at all. In fact, I am convinced that many people have stepped out of God's will trying to work at a church. Thinking that, that somehow that will validate their purpose in God's eyes. No. God says whatever you do. He says that he has, that we're the body of Christ and that there's so many different members and, and that the eye shouldn't complain because it's not a foot and that the, you know, we, we're all designed, purposed by God to do different things. You do not have to be in full-time ministry to be pleasing God by fulfilling your purpose or his purpose for you. Next one. Jesus was a white European with blue eyes. I have blue eyes. It'd be kind of cool if it turned out that they had them, but this isn't necessarily taught, but storybooks, animated movies, 
over and over and over again, portray Jesus in a surprisingly consistent way. Here's what we know. The Bible does not actually describe Jesus in detail. There's no verse that says, and he had high cheekbones and narrow eyes or wide-set eyes. And it, No. Nothing in Scripture declares it. What we know is he was a Hebrew in the first century from Galilee. Almost for certain, he was darker than 95% of depictions here in the U.S. Not that his skin tone matters, but recognize that when, when we think about what God looks like, that isn't necessarily a scriptural thing when you look at the pictures of Jesus. In early 2000s, BBC put out a, uh, a documentary, and there was a man who found... A, a Galilean skull. Not Jesus, but a man from Jesus' time, from Jesus' area. And reconstructed based on, historically on the, the, the writings of the day, what the typical, you know, everything, hair colors, all of these things came. Can you show this picture? This is a typical Galilean dude. That's not necessarily Jesus, but it's more likely that he looked like that than like this. Just for fun. Another interesting thought, John 21.4 talks about how the disciples didn't immediately recognize Jesus. Now, many people have postulated that he did that on purpose, that he blocked himself from being recognized. We've talked about how in Scripture... The Bible talks about people being recognized afar off. When Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man who had seen Lazarus at his front steps during life, when he died and was <clears throat> in eternity, looked afar off and recognized Lazarus. Our spiritual bodies resemble sufficiently our physical bodies that we will be recognizable. How many of you guys have like, not seen someone for 20 years and then run into them again? Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes you're like, oh, you know, high school reunions. I don't know what age we will look like when we are in our glorified bodies. But it's, it's interesting to consider. Number 27. You have to renew your salvation every time you sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 18 says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in the justification and life for all people. You were condemned by which trespass? Which trespass condemned you? Romans 5.18, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. 
Verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. God set it up so that, and and we've had this conversation before, but for those of you who weren't here or don't remember, we... We've, many of us have read through Scripture and you're reading in Genesis and you're like, when you read about the mistake that Adam and Eve made, the sin that they committed, you're like, man, if only I could have been there, maybe I could have done it different. Anybody ever had that thought? Or maybe, you know what, I probably couldn't have done it, but I know somebody who probably would have done a better job. I just wish. Here's the thing. I remember having those thoughts, but once you understand this, you don't have that thought anymore. Now you're like, Praise God, thank you, Adam, for making that mistake. Because by making that mistake on my behalf, now I can be made righteous because of what Jesus did. Now, it is true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, We all have sinned. We all are equally deserving of the condemnation that came as a result of Adam's sin. You, you, you sinned. You deserve condemnation. But it isn't each and every one of your sins. But it was Adam's sin. So that it wouldn't be each and every one of our perfect lives that saves us. It would be Jesus, perfect life. Ephesians 2.9 says, So no one will ever be able to boast, for salvation is never a reward for good works or human striving. Salvation is not a result of managing to avoid sin for a day, for a week, for a month. Salvation is a gift of God. And he says it is not about your striving. A few verses later, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul addresses the obvious ditch on the other side. How many of you have ever heard me say that there's a ditch on both sides of the road? And oftentimes, we go from one extreme and we jump over to the other side. The devil doesn't care which ditch you end up in. He just doesn't want you on the right path. Paul addresses the obvious other extreme. When you come to recognize that it is not my most recent sin that separated me from God, that I am not going back to hell every time I make a tiny mistake. He says this. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we all go on sinning so that grace may increase? When you recognize that, that your next sin isn't going to send you immediately to hell, should you just sin no matter what? Well, who cares? It's good. It's covered. He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer. He says, hey, when you understand that you were freed from sin, 
you don't want to go sin as much as possible. You've missed the point if that's the way you're thinking. You have been freed from sin so that you can live for him. This touches on a very profound theological thing that I don't have time to fully cover, but I'm just going to touch it anyway. That is, once saved, always saved. If I, if, if, if telling a lie, if making a mistake does not reverse my salvation, well then once I'm saved, I should just, I can just go get saved and I can just go do anything I want. And I'll never get out of it. The Bible describes God's forgiveness and his salvation so completely that Paul says when you understand it, you'll think you can just go around sinning with no effect. Why? Because that your mistakes don't undo your salvation. However, 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. The Bible is clear that there are those who fell away from the faith. Is it possible? Yes. Soon as you say that, somebody says, oh no, I must have done it. I must have committed the unpardonable sin. I must have already fallen away from the Lord. If you think that and you are disappointed at thinking that, I don't believe that's you. And here's why. The Bible says in John chapter 6, verse 44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. We could get into to deeper, we don't have time to get in deeper, but when we look at what the Bible describes as the unpardonable sin of someone um, knowing God's grace and then stepping away, it describes someone who does not want. It is an act of complete defiance. This is someone who says, I don't want God in my life. If you are, if you this is not something you accidentally do one morning. The mere fact that you still desire to be right with God demonstrates that God has drawn you. God isn't drawing someone and then laughing at them because they can't come back. What he's recognizing is there are those who, for whatever reason, in complete rebellion, choose, I want nothing to do with God anymore. Does that happen? Yes, it does. It can. Is it common? I honestly don't think it's nearly as common as those who are afraid of it tend to think. 28. Jesus was born on Christmas. So scholars have, have come up with different things. A lot of people think maybe late March, probably August, based on what the the shepherds were doing, how they were out at night with the sheep. 
it's almost certain that it wasn't December 25th. Because at that time, it's cold, might be snowing, they would have been elsewhere. Um, different scholars have come up with a few different times, anywhere from March uh, to September, but almost no way was it December 25th. Now, should we like boycott Christmas or something like that because they didn't get the date right? Absolutely not. I think that Christmas is one of the most amazing uh, cultural phenomenons in the world. The entire world celebrates Christmas together and associates that with Jesus' coming. I don't care what day they picked. I'm so grateful, but it wasn't that day. Jonah was swallowed by a whale. He was swallowed. Let me get that straight. But the Bible actually says, verse 17, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We don't know whether it was a whale or not. Today, from science class, you say, well, technically a whale isn't a fish. I think... Based on the usage of language at that time, I don't think they were differentiating the whale from others. It may have been a whale. Wouldn't be incorrect. But it may have been something else. The Lord provided, some translations say prepared. Some people get into the nitty-gritty, well, how much oxygen is there in the average fish's belly? And You know what? God prepared a fish. It happened. wasn't necessarily a whale. Um, I'm running out of time, so I don't know how many more I'm going to be able to squeeze in. But here's another one. Our eternal dwelling, that is heaven, will be a far away place. Did you know? Revelations 21, verse 1 through 4, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older things have passed away. What the Bible describes isn't that we will be taken from earth and swept away light years off to some other place. What the Bible describes is that God will destroy this earth with fire, remake it, and bring heaven here. If you wonder where heaven is, where heaven will be, according to Scripture, we'll be back here. Now, those who die right now, the Bible says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, do go to be with God. Heaven is not yet here, but it's coming. And the place where we go, if we die prior to this, is a place God will bring here eventually. When he created the earth in the beginning, before sin came and tainted things, he created a paradise. And he's going to bring that back, and it's going to be similar to that again, with no death, no mourning. It's not clouds with, with, with harp-playing half-naked angels. <laughs> Heaven is going to be like it is here. The Bible talks about there being rivers 
trees. I love the outdoors. I'm excited for heaven. Anyway, oh, it, it says there won't be seas. So think about the globe without the wasted space of all of the oceans. Anyway. All right. Should we keep going or should we dismiss? Just a couple more. All right. A sin is a sin. All sins are equal. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of life is eternal, or the gift of God is eternal life. All sin is similar in that the wages of any sin is death. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking the law. The law is like a chain. If you attach a chain to a truck and try to pull another truck out of the mud and one of the chains is made of plastic, links, and just snaps, did the chain break? Yeah. Do you have to break every link in the chain for the chain to be broken? No. In that sense, the consequence of sin as, as, an, as, as being bring, worthy of death is there. However, the Bible does not treat every sin the same. Oh, you killed somebody and I lied. This is what the Bible says in Numbers 15, 27 through 31. You'd have to read that for yourself. But it goes on to say there's a difference between unintentional sin and defiant, rebellious sin. And the punishment in the Old Testament was different based on whether you were defiantly sinful or not. The Bible also talks about those who, who stole to eat. And it says that we, we view them differently. We view them differently when someone steals to eat, but they are still responsible to pay back what they stole. Someone was sharing with me that... that uh, Laws were recently passed, I think, in Portland, saying that if you can prove you were in hardship, stealing is no longer illegal. The Bible doesn't say all sin is the exact same thing. Murder isn't the same thing as shoplifting. God does view that differently. However, as we understood before, it's not the size of my most recent sin that actually separated me from God. Anyway, um, First John, one last verse there. It says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those who, whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. It says there is differences there. Um, we're going to end with that. Um, I just want to encourage you guys, search the scripture. The Bible says that, that, that he looked favorably on those who searched the scripture daily to see that what they were taught was there. When we have a, a, an, 
a concept or an idea, we should look to Scripture and say, hey, is that true? Does it apply? Look at it. We'll, we'll continue to talk. That's part of our stuff. We can talk about how do we go through Scripture, how do we look for that. We'll, we'll get on that in another day. But I want to encourage you, look to Scripture. That is the ultimate authority. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you for everyone who is here today. We thank you that you love us, that you provided your word as a guide for us. We pray that you would continue to give us wisdom at rightly dividing your word. Thank you for it. I pray your blessing on each person here in Jesus' name. If you're here and you know that you've been forgiven, that you're right with God, I want to ask you to raise your hand. We talked about what, what God's forgiveness acquires for us. We talked about how it is the, Adam's sin that separated from us so that Jesus' sacrifice could reunite us with him. You don't have to be perfect to be forgiven. You don't have to be perfect to be right with God. He died on the cross and rose from the dead so that you could be forgiven. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you believe in your mouth that he died on the cross, and if you believe in your heart that he died on the cross and confess with your mouth that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. If you want that, if you desire that forgiveness, I want to invite you with every eye closed, to raise your hand. Say, that's me. If someone is watching online, we're going to pray together. Everyone just repeat with me. Say, dear God, I believe you died for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. I accept your forgiveness. I will strive to live for you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Awesome. Well,